can I come up there? You can, you can speak wherever you like. Oh. I think I'll go to the kitchen then. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was going to be my opening remark. I was going to say, it's been a wonderful weekend, but the high point for me was the pie on Saturday morning. Uh, I mean, you walk in and there were these large size slices of apple pie, cherry pie, and two or three other flavors, I think. And I thought, at breakfast time, and I thought, it's a really good thing that my wife Gail's not here because <laughs> she'd insist that I cut one of the pieces of pie in half and share it with her. And it's probably one of the things that's broken down our marriage over the years more than anything else is that my wife likes to share and I don't. And uh, uh, so she would want to share the pie and I would want to try to go for two pieces when she wasn't looking. But it, it, uh, it's been a wonderful weekend. Um, I've really enjoyed this visit to uh, Warsaw, Wisconsin, which I think is the home of New York Life Insurance. and. Uh, it really took you some time to think that one through, didn't it? <laughs> but I looked forward to the weekend, and it did not in any way um, disappoint me, because I met some great people. And uh, when I go back home, I'll have a lot to tell my wife, Gail. I wish she had been here this weekend. We, uh, we had planned for her to be here, but a week ago this morning, she uh, took a terrible fall. Uh, I stood there watching her go down the steps, and with un unable to do anything. And um, the injury was rather severe, and it's getting better. And I talked to her this morning a couple of times. And, uh, so I'm thankful that the, the wound is healing, but it, it was a pretty rough moment. And for that reason, the doctor said no more flying for a couple of weeks. But she would, uh, if, if she was here, uh, you might like me, but you would love her. Uh, <laughs> back a number of years ago, uh, Gail and I took a trip to Eastern Europe uh, with the Habitat for Humanity people to build a home. You, they have these projects that you do for five days, and about five o'clock on Friday afternoon, you complete the house with your team, and you hand over the keys to the new owner, and you go away feeling really satisfied that you have done something that's made a mark in some people's lives. And uh, it was a great week to do that uh, near the city of Budapest. Well, when the project was over, we all migrated into the city uh, looking for opportunities to do some sightseeing and uh, enjoy uh, the beauty of that, that great old city. And uh, along the line, someone directed us to uh, one of the better restaurants in town, and we went there and to have a Hungarian meal. And the meal was a great meal. We enjoyed ourselves. What we hadn't anticipated, however, was that part of the meal was the show afterwards. It hadn't dawned on us that the on the seats where we were eating was a stage probably about the size of the one that you have in this lovely sanctuary. And suddenly the curtains opened and we were introduced to uh, a group of people who were Hungarian folk dancers. There was about eight or nine women in Hungarian peasant costume, these broad, wide skirts, all the frills, and they, they were doing the Hungarian folk dances. And behind them were eight or nine very stern-looking tall men, all dressed in black with jackboots that came up over the knees. And they would put their hands on each other's, around each other's shoulders, and they would stomp. They were the percussion session, and they would stomp out the rhythm while the ladies were doing uh, the nice frilly dances. Well, about three Hungarian dances is about as much as I'm probably going to take. And, uh, but they had 12 on the list, and so... As the fourth one started, 
uh, and it seemed like each one lasted an hour, um, <laughs> I began looking around the room, counting all of the tiles on the roof, uh, studying the people in the room, where they, imagining where they came from, and uh, all, all kinds of things to keep my mind going. And then I saw something, because we were up toward the front, that I'm not sure anybody else saw. But off to one side of the stage, right at the front edge, there appeared a large black beetle-like bug. And it started to make its way across the front of the stage like this. Now, you, you, you know, if you're bored enough, you can really get fascinated by something like this. And I, I asked myself, you know, why is the bug there? I, I, per, I assumed it was a male bug. And, uh, but, but, but who would know, you know? And uh, so uh, it made its way. And it got to the center of the stage uh, where the women were doing their dancing and the men were doing their stomping. And the bug made a very bad decision. <laughs> if the bug had kept on going that way, it would have been a nice day for a, a long bug walk. But uh, the bug opted for what sometimes politicians call unintended consequences. The bug turned left and started back among the ladies who were doing the dancing, the men who were doing the stomping. Now the story gets very riveting. You watch this bug going and you, you think like a pastor. Don't go any further. There's going to be big consequences if you get to where the ladies are doing their dancing and the men are doing their stomping. But the bug didn't listen to me and uh, it made its way through the booties of the women who were dancing and then approached the men. The first back boot came down and just missed the bug, but the second did not. And the bug went to be with the Lord. When the boot came back up, there was just a wet spot. And a moment or two later, even the wet spot was gone. I sat there and I thought to myself, preacher that I am, this is a wonderful sermon illustration. I think a few years from now, I will tell this story in Warsaw, Wisconsin. <laughs> you are a preacher, and if you do think in categories like that, you, you can take a story like that and, and, and think about it in more serious terms. How many people are walking through life like that, and one day, with unintended consequences, they wander among the stomping boots. And something they never anticipated has happening happens. The Bible is full of the stories of women and men, young and old, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, slave, master, full of stories of people who found themselves among the stomping boots. And sometimes there were unintended consequences. In the four Gospels that we have in the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are scores of stories like that, stories of people who came to a critical moment in life where it seemed as if they had lost all hope. And the people around them didn't know what to do either. So not only was the victim of the moment without hope, the people around them were often without hope. And it's into those kinds of stories that Jesus enters. And it's one of the reasons our gospel that we talk about as Christian people, as biblical people, it follows a, a pattern over and over again 
of the brilliance, the sensitivity, the power of this one named Jesus who can change life when other possibilities of change seem totally impossible. One of the best examples of what I'm trying to say comes in the Gospel of Mark, which is the shortest of the four Gospels. And in the fifth chapter, the writer gives us three stories. Now, of course, when he wrote this Gospel, those chapter headings didn't exist, so he would have seen it in a different way, but somehow he has decided to loop stories of three people in the stomping boots of life and what happens to them. And you and I can read these three stories and drain them for their meaning, and it can do various things to us. For some of us, it will be a source of renewed hope. It's possible that there's some people here this morning. You're, you're dressed rather well. You have nice smiles on your faces. You sang the songs as if you really enjoyed them. But underneath the surface, where people cannot see, you're struggling with a hopeless day because something has happened that maybe you're not free to talk about to anybody else, but you're sitting here wondering if there's going to be a tomorrow. I have been in a church sanctuary and a worship service a few times in my life when I wondered if there was any hope for my future. So I understand that kind of experience. Sometimes we come and we sit in the sanctuary and it's not the issue of hope, it's, it's the matter of confusion. Where do I turn? Who can bring sensibility to my life? Who can show me the way to God? And that's why we sing these songs. With Jesus as the center point of the message. Now when Mark gave us these three stories, I, I'm a writer so I'm always fascinated with how other people write. And, uh, when he gave us these three stories, it seems to me that he looped them together with several supporting ideas in mind. Uh, one point would be that he wanted us to see that these three people, although they are totally different, were very much the same. They had some similarities in their personal needs in life, which no one else would have appreciated except Jesus when he entered their lives. But they are disparate people. One is a man, one is a woman, one is a child. And they were at that moment in the stomping boots where in another moment there would be nothing less than the proverbial wet spot. Let me relate these stories to you and tie them together and see if in any way they bring encouragement to you as they have always brought encouragement to me. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, the first of the three stories is the longest. If you did Sunday school at one point in your life and studied the stories of the Bible, without a doubt you heard this story more than once. I can remember my Sunday school teacher with the flannel graph board in the days before PowerPoint, who every week would set the flannel graph board up on the easel, and she would use the same stick figures every week. One week this guy was Joseph, the next week he was Daniel, the third week he was Isaiah, and the fourth week he was Jesus. And somehow, as children, we never questioned this. It just seemed the wise thing to do. But here's Jesus in this story, and uh, it's one that I acted out when I was a child in Sunday school, so I know the story fairly well. Mark writes, I'm reading from the Bible now, they went across the lake to the region of the Gadareans, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, 
For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. That's a remarkable description of a human being in deep, deep trouble. This man is certainly in the middle of the stomping boots. Some people would take the writer exactly at his word and say, oh, this is demon possession. And a lot of us were brought up to believe in the possibility of that, that evil can get so thick in a person's life that it just takes over somebody's will or emotions or intellect, and they begin to do crazy things. Gail and I lived in New York City for a few years. I was born in New York City, so I know the city fairly well through a lifetime. We saw people like this quite frequently, sleeping in the doors of buildings, on the subway grates, out in the parks, in all kinds of strange places. So it doesn't bother me to look at this and say, yeah, there is an evil power that can take over a person's life and cause craziness that few people could even imagine. On the other hand, it's possible that the writer is simply describing to us a person who's a, a sociopath of a type, and this is the best way he knows how to explain this unexplainable behavior. Uh, you can take your choices of those interpretations, but the point is just the same. There's hopelessness here. You can imagine this man, day and night, doing crazy things. I wonder how it all got started. I wonder if there was a time in this man's life when he lived in a village, had a wife, children. Maybe he was a good neighbor, uh, loved to go to parties, did crazy things. People always thought of him as the life of the evening. But little bit by little, his life got more and more dangerous until he becomes a threat to his children and certainly a threat to his wife. And finally, friends and relatives and maybe townspeople get together and they say, he's got to go. There's nothing we can do for him. If he hangs around much longer, some of us are going to be in serious trouble. He's going to hurt somebody. So they try to overcome him and they take him out to a place where they think that they can keep him apart from the village. They chain him to trees. They chain him to stones and other things. They do everything they can do to, to f make it possible that they will be safe and he will not return. My imagination climbs into the story. Were there times when his children saw him on the horizon and wondered why he didn't come home? Were there times when his wife, lonely in her bed, heard the screams and the shouts of her half-crazed husband out in the darkness? I mean, you can just go as far as you want to go and imagine how awful a situation this is, and nobody can do anything until the day that Jesus appears on the beach somewhere in that area. And the two approach each other, the crazy guy and the Son of God. What is your name, Jesus asks. And this voice comes back, my name is Legion, for we are many. That's a strange statement. I'm not sure that any of us, no matter whether we're great scholars or not, can fully plumb that answer and understand it fully. 
I do know that uh, by way of illustration, there was a time when I was in Russia and when I got ready, the people who had been my host gave me one of these Russian dolls, you know, where you take off the head and inside is another doll and you take off that head and doll until you're down to about doll number nine. And I looked at that doll when I got it home and I thought, you know, that's kind of like me. I wonder if there's seven or eight or ten Gordons inside of the Gordon that you're looking at this morning. I wonder if all those Gordons like each other. Or maybe some of those dolls or Gordons are out to destroy other Gordons inside of me. I wonder if that's something of what the Bible is trying to say when it talks about the troubledness, the chaos that often can be found in the human soul. When this man says, we are many, is he talking about the doll-like layers of his interior life that he has no understanding of, neither does anybody else? My name is Legion. We are many. And we're out of control. We're out of alignment. We're trying to battle each other. And the result is that the whole town has been affected by the evil power inside this man. The text doesn't tell us exactly how Jesus went through it, but there was this conversation, and somewhere along that point, Jesus does what no one else can do. The forces, the spirits, the demons, whatever it is inside of this man is suddenly cast out, and life is reordered. And you have this strange paragraph in which the demons are put into a herd of pigs who now go down the hillside into the lake. And this man suddenly has been restored to what God made him to be. And there's this very interesting verse at the end of this story. It says, when the townspeople heard what had happened, they came out to this place. Listen to these words. They saw him sitting there, clothed in his right mind. What a beautiful description of normal acting humanity. Jesus has restored this man to what he is supposed to be. The three words, sitting there. For so long, he'd been running frantically and crazily across the countryside. Now, for the first time, his body, his mind, is at rest, and he can sit, and he can participate in life with other people. Sitting there clothed, the word clothed here suggests to me a man whose dignity has been restored, who now is sociable, who can enter into comfortable company and be a human being again in his right mind. He can appreciate color. He can appreciate humor, or as we say in New England, humor. He can appreciate conversation. He can think. He can innovate. He can reach out and touch and love and hold his children. He can embrace his wife. They can return to their home and to their bed. All of that has been done after so many years of hopelessness when Jesus appears on the scene. So that's one of the most beautiful stories, I think, in the New Testament. It conveys to us not only hopelessness, but the power of Jesus and what it is that the gospel is really meant to do. The gospel is supposed to return us to normal behavior, citizenship, 
to be what God meant us all to be, to return us to the self that heaven prepared for us to be. And Jesus makes the difference. The second story that the Gospel of Mark gives us in this chapter is a little bit shorter, but you get the same impact. Jesus is now in a little village, and he's walking amongst a crowd of people. And Mark says, in that town there was a woman who had a very serious, apparently gynecological disease. And she went everywhere trying to find people who would know how to cure whatever it was that was bothering her. She went from village to village, saving up money, paying doctors, hoping that one of them would have an answer to her physical problems. But nobody had been able to perform, and the result was that there was disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. More than a few of us, I'm sure, at some times in our life, have had some kind of physical malady that um, renders us hopeless for a moment. Someone says, oh, I know a doctor in Chicago. So we save up our money or we make arrangements with the insurance company and we go, but it turns out not to work. Oh, I know a doctor in San Francisco. I know a doctor in Kentucky. And the hopes rise each time for this person, only to be met again by disappointment. This little paragraph means a lot to me personally because Gail and I right now have a close friend who has been suffering with a severe migraine headache condition for three years. I mean, she's just in constant pain. She's a brilliant And before this all started, she had done some incredible things in the world in which she lives. And now she's rendered almost hopeless 24 hours a day with this migraine condition. And I suspect that we have heard 15 or 20 times that she has found some doctor or some treatment, and she and her husband have gone to Philadelphia, they've gone to Orlando, they've gone to New York, they've gone to other places across the country, and we all, those of us who know this situation, we pray for her and we believe that this may be the magic moment in which heaven intervenes. But for three years it hasn't happened. So when I read these words, a woman there who was subjected to bleeding for 12 years, She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up from him behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak. Why would she do that? Because women did not come close to male rabbis, much less touch them. So she's taking a huge risk here when she says, I'm going to even touch the bottom, the hemline of his clothing. She's hoping no one will see. In fact, I think she's hoping that not even Jesus will realize what she's done, that somehow the magic of his power will come into her and he won't even know that it happened. That's the kind of mentality I think I see in this paragraph. But Jesus immediately stops. And he says, who touched me? And when you read the renditions of this moment, in one of the the disciples, probably Simon Peter, says, who touched you? Lord, you're in the middle of a huge crowd. It's like Rush Hour right now. Everybody's touching you. What do you mean, touched me? And the implication of Jesus' answer is simply, yeah, there may be a lot of people thronging me and pressing me, but only one person has touched me. 
Use those words for a moment and, and let them speak to your own soul as I've let them speak to mine. How many times have I been in a crowd that sings nice songs like these? Here's great prayers like your pastor prayed a little while ago. You're in the crowd, but you leave, and I've done this many times, you leave untouched. Somehow you didn't experience the presence of Christ like other people did. It was just a religious event. And for most of the people in this crowd, it was just a religious event. But one person reached out in faith and touched him. And he knew it instantly. A power had gone out of him. And he was able to measure immediately the dissipation of heaven's power from him to her. And he turns and says, who touched me? And she acknowledges that she's the one who's done this. And my imagination again says, I wonder what she expected Jesus to do when she admitted to touching him. She could have been flogged. She could have been arrested and some other punishment used. This was a forbidden encounter. But she does admit that she touched him. And Jesus immediately says to her, listen to these words, my daughter, go your way in peace. Your faith has healed you. Now, whatever this disease was that she had, think about this, for 12 years, forbade her to touch anybody else, her children, her husband, her relatives, her neighbor. For 12 years, she has been touchless. We hear a lot these days from psychologists and other students of humanity who say that if you don't get touched, especially in the first days of your life, it can trouble you all the way through the extent of your life. We need touching of one type or another, the touching of affection, the touching of assurance, the touching of comfort, the touching that lets other people know that they, or lets us know that other people consider us valuable and significant. She'd not been touched for 12 years. And, and not only that, a woman with this physical condition could not go to the synagogue and participate in the weekly activities of the congregation. And physically, she was probably too weak to do anything. Her mind could have been sharp but she couldn't do the things that women of those days did to fulfill their own sense of role in the community. So when Jesus says to her, daughter, go your way in peace, your faith has healed you. This is an open door to a whole new life. I can go home, I can do my labor, I can hug my husband, I can be with my children. And just like it was the man who was sitting there clothed in his right mind, now we have a woman who can go back and resume the normalcy of life. She is a whole person again. Now in the middle of all that is a third story of hopelessness. The man that the community cannot in any way resolve his problems. The woman who has never met a doctor who can bring healing. And now it's an even worse situation for in the middle of all this there is this man who comes rushing up to Jesus he's a man of some social standing and power my daughter is dying would you come to her house without a doubt he'd heard rumors stories that wherever Jesus went 
there were healing tales that came out of his encounters with people. And so this desperate father will do anything, including asking this itinerant rabbi to come to his home. What a humble thing this is for him. No man of his standing would normally have done this. But he wants that daughter healed. Some of you must have known the feeling in the life of one of your children. When our daughter, Christy, was about three years of age, she came across a, a bottle of candied aspirin. And thinking it was indeed candy, she took the whole bottle and chewed it up. And when Gail discovered her, she was in serious trouble. I can remember that day because I was driving home and on the other side of the road there was an ambulance coming toward me with its lights flashing and its sirens screaming on its way to the hospital. Little did I know that I was going the opposite direction of an ambulance carrying our daughter. And no one could guarantee to us that this child was going to survive this moment. The doctor said there could be brain damage, there could be kidney damage. Um, on the other hand, maybe this child will pull through, but that will be a miracle. And I remember as a young pastor, I was the one who was always caring for other people. I was the one who gave the answers to other people who were struggling with hopelessness, but now it was my turn. The unintended consequences of the stomping boots had hit our home. And I vividly recall those 72 hours as Gail and I waited in the intensive care waiting room. They wouldn't let us in like pastors usually get to go. But waiting every two hours for the next bulletin, how is our daughter doing? Well, the quick answer to my own question is she's doing just fine. She's now in her 50th year and the mother of three college-educated children, and um, she's probably my very, very closest friend other than my wife herself. But when I read this story of this man so desperate for his dying daughter, I say to myself, yep, I know just how you feel. You will do anything all the way up to giving your own life if this child will pull through. And Jesus makes his way to this home. And when he gets there, the writer says to us, the home apparently is surrounded by people who've already gotten the word before Jesus gets there. The child is already dead. So it's time for the weepers and the wailers, some of whom get paid for what they do, to surround the house and start singing the death songs because this child is gone. And when Jesus arrives in the company of the father and perhaps meets the mother, it's a pretty gloomy moment. But the only person who's the optimist in the crowd is Jesus. Everybody else has lost their hope. And when he says, this child is not dead, she's sleeping, that's a, a moment for a kind of a cynical laugh on the part of a lot of people. She's sleeping? She's dead. The hope is gone. When you read that and you insert it into your own life at one point or another, you say to yourself again, I know just how they feel. But the Lord goes up to the room where this child lies and there's a moment of encounter and Jesus instructs her through heavenly power to rise and get up and the child comes back to consciousness. And I love the last line and I, 
forgive me, I just think that Mark must have a little bit of sense of humor in her when he says, and Jesus told the parents to give her something to eat. And I say to myself, I guess you get real hungry when you die. <laughs> and I imagine if this child is anything like I would have been at that age, I would have put in an order for cold milk and chocolate chip cookies. But the message is very clear. Where Jesus is present, there is the insertion of hope. And this child comes back to life. So you have three stories. A man who acts crazy, who's totally absent of his normal facilities. A woman who has a disease nobody can heal. A family that has a dead child. And in each of the three situations, Jesus does what no one else can do. I love this chapter. And I can't tell you how many times over the years I've turned to it to once again drain that message out of those three stories for some particular moment in my life. When I was a very, very young preacher of the Bible, just fresh out of graduate school, there was a church in another part of this country that contacted me one day and asked if I would come for the weekend and, and preach in the services. Well, when you're a young person and people invite you to fly a thousand miles to do a, a sermon, you, you pray about it for six seconds and you say yes. Uh, I mean, I, I would go anywhere in those days to preach. Um, and, I, and so I said yes. About that time, I was working with a, a, young, a group of young men on an innovative idea about evangelism. And, and uh, it, it was a wonderful dream we were pursuing. But uh, a little bit by little, there rose in the midst of us a, a bit of contention between myself and one of the other people. He had made some promises to me which he didn't keep. And in my youthfulness and in my immaturity, I didn't handle the situation well. I made an unintended turn to the center stage, and I deliberately went to the stomping boots. And what I'm trying to say is I, I began to dislike this person and then resent this person and then really feel hurt by this person until finally, and I'm going to use strong words to make my point, until I hated this person. I would wake up in the middle of the night. The first thing my mind went to was what this person had done to me and how could I get back at them. Any idle moment in my days, I found myself thinking about him, how I could hurt him back in the way I felt he'd hurt me. This had never happened to me before. I used to think I was a person incapable of really being angry, let alone resentment or hatred. And yet for the first time in my life, this spirit had taken over in me. So on this particular weekend, I'm on this airplane. It's Friday morning. The plane is almost empty. I'm in the back row all by myself, like having a private jet. And the plane is flying along, and suddenly this voice comes alive in me. And the voice says, so where are you going today? Well, I'm going to such and such a town. Well, what are, you going to, what are you going to do there? Oh, I'm going to preach this weekend. You're going to preach this weekend. What are you going to preach about? Well, I'm going to preach about the love of Christ. The love of Christ, how interesting. 
How are you going to preach about the love of Christ when you hate someone as badly as you do today? How can you expect anybody to really take into themselves what you have to offer if you are like this on the inside of your life? Well, I hope no one's going to find out, but they will. Well, I don't know what to do. And heaven says, you might try to forgive. Well, I thought I'd tried that and it didn't work. Well, try it again. Ask me for the power to forgive. Lord, Give me the power to empty myself of this resentment, of this hatred. Give me the ability to forgive. And in a moment, it was like some invisible hand began to cut a hole in my chest. And when the hole had been opened up, there flowed out in this vision I had, this black, inky substance, just thick like the maple syrup I put on my waffle this morning. And for 30 minutes, I just felt this emptying go on and on and on. I wonder if that's what it felt like to the man who lost his sanity that Jesus healed, or the woman who had the disease that no doctor could diagnose, or the parents and the child who experienced death. But that was what was going on for me that morning. And when the plane touched the ground a little while later, I remember feeling 50 pounds lighter and I fairly danced off that plane with a feeling of freedom I hadn't had for weeks, maybe months. Jesus had done something in my life that I could not do for myself. And you know what? I preached that weekend with a freedom and a power and a choice of words that I have rarely ever had in my whole life, even to this day. Somehow, there was a liberation in me as a very young, inexperienced preacher that was able to reach out and really connect with this congregation, which was going through its own particular problems of division and dislike. It must have been a great day because on Sunday night after the evening service, we were Baptists, so we had an evening service that Sunday, um, the elders or leaders of the church, and they came and they said to me, you're a very young man. We had not intended for this conversation to happen, but we would like to talk to you about the possibility of being our next pastor. You've brought a spirit to us this day that we, ter we desperately need. Would you talk with us about that? And about 10 or 12 weeks later, Gail and I and our firstborn son moved into the parsonage of that Baptist church, and for the next seven years... I was the preacher of the Bible each Sunday morning, the person who cared for the people, who came close to people, who tried to disciple new Christians. And the point I'm trying to make when I tell you that little self-serving story is simply this. Do you think those people would have been interested in listening to me that Sunday if I hadn't had the experience I described to you about Friday morning? Would they have seen anything in me if Jesus hadn't touched my life in a way that I could not touch it? Why, I don't think they would have seen anything worth valuing in me. And that leads me to the principle of unintended uh, consequences. 
Because if I'd made a left turn at center stage and gone among the stomping boots and not asked Jesus' presence in that moment, I wouldn't have gone to that church. And now, some 50 years later, I don't think I'd be standing here today in front of you. So when the moments come, and we all take our walk across center stage, and we get to the point where you go straight ahead to safety or you turn left into the stomping boots. It will happen to each of us, young or old, sooner or later. The big question is, will Jesus be with you? Will he be present to you? Will his power move upon you? And if the answer to that is yes, it opens the door to whole new possibilities. And that's my hope for all of you. May God be with you this day. Let's pray. Father, my prayer this morning is for anyone walking that center stage route or who may be among the stomping boots of life in this very moment. My prayer for each person here, young and old, that Jesus will be present to them and that this may be a day in which life is stabilized, reassembled, filled with hope, given joy. This is my prayer always for myself and for my friends. In Jesus' name, amen.